With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The next chapter with Prim Saripabat is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the next chapter. I'm Prim, your host. And I should say for the returning customers or listeners, welcome back. I know we took a little hiatus there and I'll just blame it on the pandemic. But here we are back with season two. This week's guest is former professional tennis player Sergei Stakovsky. Sergei turned pro at just 17 years old and during his nearly two decades on the ATP tour, he won eight titles, achieved a career high singles ranking of number 31 in the world and made 37 main draw Grand Slam appearances. And although he never advanced past the third round in any major, he has pulled off some pretty unimaginable upsets, including one over Roger Federer at the 2013 Wimbledon Championships, which snapped Federer's run of 36 straight Grand Slam quarterfinals. Prior to my interview with Sergey, which took place a couple of weeks ago, our lineup for the show was set-ish, and we were going to open the season two of the next chapter with a different guest. But... I decided to change things up because what makes this interview so timely and so relevant is Sergei is in Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, and also his hometown. I'm sure many of you are aware of Russia's recent invasion of Ukraine and how things have really escalated over there, to say the least. And Sergei, who literally just retired this past January after the Australian Open and after a 19-year professional tennis career made the decision to leave his family, which includes his wife and three kids, all under the age of seven, to join the Ukrainian army as a reservist to fight for his homeland. We unpack a ton during what ends up being a pretty heavy and emotional conversation. What makes this interview so unique is that I'm catching Sergei essentially live and in the middle of his transition from sport. And I could tell that a lot of his emotions were very raw and understandably so because he's sitting in the middle of a war zone. So you might notice some pauses during the conversation. You might notice him talking about the war in Ukraine, the politics behind it, the implications of it. And what I tried to do was gently bring the conversation back to his experience as a former athlete and his transition towards his newfound purpose. I was not in any way trying to be dismissive of the Ukraine-Russia war, but for the purposes of this show, I really wanted to focus on Sergei's experience as a recently retired professional athlete. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Sergei Stakovsky, which was taped on March 8th. And just for context, we have been trying to connect for over an hour, but it was in the evening over in Ukraine, and he was driving, trying to make his way back to base in Kyiv, and had some issues going through multiple checkpoints. But eventually, we were able to connect.
Sergey, I'm so appreciative of you making the time to come on here because I know there's a lot going on. I know there you have a lot of things on your plate. You have a lot of responsibilities. You're getting a lot of media requests, but more importantly, I cannot imagine the stress that you are experiencing. I mean, even just trying for us to connect and have this interview, you know, you were delayed. So I just want to check in with you first as a person and a human being. How are you feeling? And your hair looks fantastic. Don't worry about that. But how how are you feeling right now? Um, it's up and down, I would say. Uh, you know, when when I came in, so I've been here already for what days, Monday for a week, uh, more than a week. Um, and you know, the adrenaline kicks in, and you know, and you everything you knew, you want to know, you understand. And but once that, I would say, adrenaline and enthusiasm settles in, you know, you start to uh, operate more logically and rationally and you understand the circumstances you're in and you're trying to calculate and understand what's going to be the next step and how the situation will evolve and yeah it has its ups and downs you know sometimes as today when i was coming back and i saw our uh, defenders on the checkpoints giving away flowers to to the, to the women uh, greeting them on the 8th of march you raise a spirit because you say shit i mean <laughs> they really cannot defeat us that even in such circumstances and times they still think about that but it, it's ups and downs. When I have the time to think, when there's a vacuum of time, and you, you know you lay down and think and think that, that you know right now they're bombing Kharkiv big time, uh, shelling it from the Russian border side, so Ukrainian cannot return fire. Um, I understand that the Kiev is, is basically looking for the same same thing soon. Mm-hmm. So you're where are you right now? In Kiev, in the capital. Okay. Okay. Um, and that's where you were born and raised. Okay. So what, if you could just give us a little description of what's it like over there right now, what are you seeing? What are you feeling? Well, you have to understand Kiev is a sort of a very small New York where, you know, you have traffic, people, thousands of people in the streets, everybody's rushing somewhere. Now Kiev looks like after apocalypse, you know, there's no cars on the streets, not even park on the, on the curbside. Uh, there's very few people walking around, although there still are, but there's very few. Uh, only grocery stores and uh, pharmacies are open. The rest of the business is closed. So it's, I would say it's different. I would never expect uh, in my life and I would never imagine in my life that I would have a wear a bulletproof vest uh, and a helmet and, and, and hold a gun walking the streets of Kiev. Yeah. I would imagine because that's the place that you've, you've seen and you've experienced and um, grown up in the town that you probably have met very many fond memories of. It probably looks like a complete disaster right now. Well, it doesn't look like a disaster yet. Of course, they hit some buildings. They, they killed Mm -hmm. civilians already inside Kiev, but it's still not so, you know, it's not, the damage is not so great yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's more unimaginable is that we are in twenty first century. Uh, we are in the middle of Europe. It's not like we are. I'm not going to, you know, discriminate and say, but we are not somewhere in Africa or some Middle East. We are a developed country you know, with mm-hmm. uh, all the technologies. Everybody has access to the internet. Uh, everybody has standards for living. You know, nobody's living in the desert. Nobody's living in a in a, in a cornfield. Everybody has a house, electricity, utilities. And yet, we are struck by an invasion. 
by a country which is superior to ours, which is bigger than ours, which is the biggest country by size in the world. And it's shocking. It's shocking that, you know, everybody, you know, the, the American, uh, all these intelligent agencies say, yeah, they will invade. But you would never imagine in, in, in a million years that they would invade openly, full scale, all sides, and including Belarus, that a Belarus would, you know, let them, I mean, we know that Belarus dictatorship is the only way they can now turn is into Russia, but that they would allow, you know, that such a sneaky attack, I would say, uh, from the back, um, that they would have no moral cause, that they would bombard the uh, the Chernobyl, uh, they would uh, attack the nuclear facility, nuclear plant in Zaporizhia, shooting with the tanks on the nuclear reactors. I mean, this is just something that I think no one can imagine. I think no one can comprehend the, the scale and and the size and, and the devastation of what's going on in Ukraine. Yeah. I think it's really hard to watch something like this from afar. Um, you know, I, I'm experiencing my own range of emotions. And even as we, you and I were trying to connect and um, connect today for the interview, I mean, I just had this pit in my stomach because even when, you know, you say, okay, uh, you know, we're going, we're, I'm trying to make it back to base and we've got to go through checkpoints. I mean, I'm just like, my gosh, what is he safe? What's going on? And then I can, if I'm feeling that, and this is our really first interaction, other than me calling your match many years ago, I cannot imagine what your family is experiencing, what your wife is experiencing. Um, what has that been like? It's been tough. Uh, it's been very tough on her. Uh, I understand that uh, she accepted it. She supports it. She understands why I have done it. But I still believe that somewhere I betrayed our kids and her. Uh, but for me, it was either way I would betray somebody. I would either betray my country and my brother and my father who stayed behind or I would betray my little ones. It's it's a choice which I I wish that no father had to do. Uh, because... Um, if nobody would come back, if nobody was safe to defend, I would have, my kids would have no place to return. There would be no country. Mm. Russia would roll over, and that's their plan. They would roll over, they would erase Ukraine from the history books of Russia. And knowing their propaganda skills, I think they would they would uh, be pretty good in it. And then uh, we live in Budapest with a family right now. And Budapest would be only 300 kilometers away from new Russia again. And then who's going to give the guarantee that they're not going to continue? Because for Putin, uh, the biggest, uh, as he said in multiple interviews, he said that for him, the greatest tragedy of the 20th century was the collapse of Soviet Union. And that tells you a lot. Yeah. No. Mm. No. Um, You know, the show is about uh, making that transition from sport and retiring as an athlete is is always a challenging process, right? There's there's so many things that go into it. There's logistical process. There's an emotional process. There's saying goodbye, new identities, shedding an old identity. But for you, I think what makes it so deeply unique is that you just you just retired. You're playing at the Aussie Open. Like you just stepped away from the game. 
And then all of a sudden you are thrown into a new purpose, a new life purpose, if you will. And for a lot of athletes, it takes typically, it it usually takes time for them to find this new purpose. But what has, what has that transition been like from professional tennis player to now a member of the Ukrainian army? Well, reserve, army reserve, that's big. That's a big uh, Uh difference. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, first of all, it's not, my transition started way earlier. I, I jumped into wine business about five, six years ago. Uh, so I do have my winery in Ukraine and we already sell wine. Unfortunately, we've been not very successful because <laughs> we started to sell during pandemic started. And now during the war, uh, it's uh, probation. So no, no one can sell alcohol. Alcohol is not allowed to sell uh, inside Ukraine. So, yeah, it's tough time. So that was a sort of uh, a passion for me in which I was really hoping to, you know, dive in and, and devote myself to that. Parallel to that, uh, I'm a owner or part owner of a tennis club where we I was trying to delegate some of my tennis skills and knowledge and, you know, pass it on to the, to the next gens of Ukrainians. Uh, and on top, we were actually very close. We actually done everything, all the, all the hard work, all the hard wiring, all the structuring of a um, model to uh, to support our Olympic athletes uh, individually. So we, as you have a Team USA, it's more or less the same thing, but very direct. Uh, we would work directly with athletes. We would uh, accommodate their needs and you know create the environment for every single individual specifically to maximize their achievements. And actually, on the third of March, we were supposed to sign a memorandum with uh, with the president of Ukraine and the uh, Ministry of Sports which would delegate, uh, delegated us the, that, basically, task. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, uh, that didn't come through yet. I still believe that uh, we will win this uh, battle, and I still believe that we will have our Olympians standing uh, on a podium uh, in Paris 2024. Mm. But it's going to take some time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was this decision-making process like? Um, I, I believe you're over in Dubai with your family vacationing when you got the word about the invasion. And so can you take me through that process of how you made the decision um, to come back home and uh, leave your family? Um, it is. Um, I can't really describe that there was a decision making. Uh, I woke up around 6.30 a.m. in Dubai time or 7 with already having about 10 or 15 messages on my phone and I knew that something bad is happening. Uh, the godfather of my uh, of my son, Nikki Four, texted me that it started and I knew what that meant. Then my parents texted me that, you know, that they hear some bombing and there's uh, shelling flying all over the place. Um, it's desperation at start. You know, I jump on a, on a bad and I turn on the TV. I think in Dubai we had only BBC or CNN. Uh, so I think I put on BBC and I was trying to understand what's going on and they were showing, you know, the Russians invading and all fronts and they're taking over already the cities and whatever, etc. So uh, emotionally disaster. Uh, I think I didn't sleep for three nights. I barely eat. Um, I was trying to follow nonstop on the phone, talking to my family, seeing uh, where, what, what kind of information I can get, you know, what is needed to be done. Um, and... Uh, yeah, it was tough. Uh, the toughest part was actually seeing Russians uh, who stayed in the same hotel as us, uh, you know, acting absolutely normal. 
uh, you know, celebrating, having fun, having a laugh about the situation. That was just, wow. that was just, uh, my wife was really, uh, when we, we, we were sitting, I think on the, on the second day, she finally get me to eat something. We get, we get down when the kids went to sleep. It was about I don't know, uh, 11 o'clock in the evening. And there was a group of Russians, uh, you know, they came in, they had fun. They were laughing about the situation, you know, the invasion. The, the oh Ukraine's my gosh. Out. And I was very close, you know, to actually, you know, bring up a fight. Uh, but, you know, she said that this is unacceptable and I should come down. Um, yeah, it is. Uh, the toughest part is, I would say, um, trying to understand the whole situation and not having all the knowledge that you need to, to put the picture in. Uh, of course, from the start, I had that feeling that, you know, my family's there. I need to do something about it. I can't just leave. Uh, I mean, I've, you know, I've done um, not enough, I would say, in the 14. And I never joined the army in the 14 during the revolution and during the war with, with Russia, which started in 14. But I was uh, supporting the army, supporting the volunteers, you know, trying to donate uh, money, bulletproof vests, helmets, gloves, anything I could get my hands on. Uh, and uh, this time around, I felt that, you know, it, it's going to be different because it was a full-size blow. Uh, it was a full-scale attack. And I was pretty sure that by the time I get back and put my family to safety, you know, there'll be no Ukraine. Uh, but the resistance and the resilience and I would say bravery of the uh, Ukraine armed forces just showed us, you know, that those eight years which we were in the frozen conflict with Donetsk and Luhansk uh, regions, with Russia, they trained our uh Armed forces, you know, they were they were ready. They were prepared. They uh, they repelled the, the attacks pretty swiftly. I would say, of course, when you have a, a southern kilometer long border with Russia, you cannot control all of it. It's just impossible. I mean, we just don't have enough forces to do it. Mm-hmm. So you know, they were letting them in somewhere, then striking the back. I mean, they've done remarkable work. I would say in stopping the progression of Russia. Uh, the amount of the total, the, the amount of dead soldiers uh, or soldiers killed or captured uh, by Ukraine, the amount of uh, armored vehicles, airplanes, helicopters shut down. It's insane. I mean, we shut down more than 40 airplanes, uh, fighter jets. We shut down around 38, I think, helicopters, fighting helicopters, Uh, hundreds uh, of tanks. I mean, it's really devastating numbers. I mean, Ukraine even didn't possess such number of, of, uh, uh, I don't know, armed for vehicles and airplanes in the first place, but they shut them down. So I would say the whole world was expecting us to be collapsing on day two, uh, yet we're still here and I had the time to come back. Of course, when we landed from Dubai on Saturday morning, Saturday noon, um, uh, it was a tough choice. Um, I wasn't sure that I'm going to make it. I wasn't sure that I'll have the the guts to go and to leave them and to go. I wasn't sure at all. Um, I didn't tell my kids. They were just, you know, I think uh, some of them were on an iPad, some of them were reading, so I just kissed them and, you know, I just said, I'm going to come right back. Um, The little one, Alex, he's the smallest, he's three. He saw me leaving and uh, I was just with my backpack and he said, he's like, Daddy, where are you going? I said, I'll be right back. And, uh, you know, I just hope that I will be right back. That's, uh, that is tough, I agree. That is something that I, 
that I cannot calculate or, or explain why. That's tough. No. You know, as I mentioned, you know, I have a three and a half year old and a seven month old. Mm. And I don't know. Children change you, right? They, they really, they give you a whole new purpose. Um, yeah. yeah, they do. And so it sounds like while there was no moment or maybe the not really the, an opportunity because they're so young to explain to them what was going on, but it sounds like so much of what you're doing right now and your decision-making was because of them, because you wanted a future for them. And that's what it sounds like. Um, hearing, hearing, I wish to hope that this is the cause, and that it would actually have mattered. Yeah. So, what was that conversation like with um, your wife? It was tough. Uh, she was upset. Uh, she, of course, she didn't want to let me go. Um, and uh, uh, I just have a very small window and well, I wouldn't say opportunity, but I just had a really small window where I just left. Uh, um, yeah, it's, there's nothing heroic about it, let's put it that way. I would never say that what I've done is something you know, out of ordinary or heroic. I would say it's, it's not heroic at all. But I, all my life I was trying to do things whether they were right or wrong to somebody else on the side, but they were right to me. And um, those series of events, those uh, decisions which I made down the road, they brought me to where I was. And uh, I just couldn't do any different. I don't know whether I was raised this way or, or why, but I just, I couldn't. Imagine that I would stay and, you know, Ukraine would most likely, even with me here, would collapse. Hopefully not, but, I mean, we all have to prepare for the worst. And I would just sit out and I would just stand by and watch how it's all going on. And having my brother and my father here and not having security and understanding of the situation and my grandmother here. And I just, it's good. I'm so curious about why you say that it's it's not heroic, because I think on the outside, a lot of people are kind of seeing it as such, um, especially coming from somebody who just wrapped up one chapter of their life and is now entering this with absolute, really no military training. It, it sounds like that you have some experience with um, shooting a gun, but no formal proper training, no military experience. Um, and I think to a lot of people, not only just in the, the tennis community, but beyond, everybody looks at it and looks at to you as if you are doing something heroic. So why do you feel like it is not? You know, because I've seen a lot of fathers, husbands, you know, putting their kids' wives on a train, on a bus, sending them away while standing behind. And we're talking about kids which are a bit older than my kids, 
kids who understand because they live in a country with a conflict for the past eight years and they understand what's going on. And that's heartbreaking. And I just couldn't see that I could be any different. Why should I you know, be different from that? That's Do you think that you'll, it almost sounds as if, um, I can imagine it just feels like a lot of conflicting feelings. Like sometimes the right thing to do for what we feel for ourselves is oftentimes the hardest thing to do, right? Like right decisions don't always feel great. And oftentimes bad decisions are the easier ones and it's like the easier thing to do. But it it certainly sounds like, um, I mean, there's just a wave of conflicting feelings where you felt like you had this decision and it felt like the right one for you, but it's hard to grasp all the other emotions that come with it attached with your family, of course, and your, your wife and your children. Yep. So what has it been like so far? Um, I know you're at base. Um, and it, it sounds like I know that some of the civilian fighters have been put through some basic training, but can you just kind of like set the scene a little bit about, um, what, what it's been like for you? Well, we are in a place with about another, I don't know how many, um, men, um, basically my day is consisting of, uh, three shifts in patrol two hours of patrol over six hours of rest. Uh, in between those six hours, I still go out and I try to, you know, facilitate some humanitarian aids and, you know, we drive uh, some people out. We try to find the best route for some people from a tough spot. Uh, we communicate with different armed forces. We, I do interviews, you know, and trying to spread the message around the world that the war is brutal and, you know, the, we need support from the world to to stop it. Um, yeah, we've been here, same thing. We, we, I'm staying with a friend of mine who actually sent his wife and, and son uh, across the border and picked me up on the way in. Um, yeah, uh, it's uh, it's routine, I would say. Uh, yes, uh, Kiev is, is getting in, digging in, uh, building defense systems. They... Uh, everybody's enrolling in the army and reserves. Uh, in, in Kiev, I think they don't accept any more reserves because there's no more spaces. I mean, they, they filled up everything they could. So we are, as a nation, superbly motivated uh, not to lose because we know what the Russian world brings. Uh, we've seen it for the past eight years in the Donetsk and Luhansk regions uh, where they were controlling situation and it's, it's, a, it's a misery, disaster and tyranny. And I am very hopeful that it will not land here in Ukraine because uh, they are, I don't know what the cause is. The cause is whether to, you know, he, what, what Putin said that he wants to denationalize Ukraine. What basically denationalizing Ukraine meaning killing all the citizens. It's like denationalizing USA. You know, how can you denationalize a country from identity of the country? Um, so for, for him, for them, for him, and for actually a great number of Russians, and today I have, uh, I have an account from, uh, from one of the biathlon uh, skiers. Uh, he gave me his account on Instagram to try to talk to his audience because a lot of them are Russian. 
and they, the, the propaganda is just so so severe that you know they say it's all lies. You know they don't kill civilians, they don't shell uh, civilian cities, they don't kill volunteers, they don't shoot civilian people on spot. And I mean, I wish that would be the truth, but the truth is that we are in Ukraine and we are defending, and they are trying to attack. So whatever comes, they are in the right spot, not us. Mm-hmm. And we. I can see it in the eyes of the of the other people. I mean, they will defend by all means. I mean, with the bare hand, they're stopping tanks. They, they're shouting and chanting for Russians to get out of the city. They don't want to be a part of Russian world. Yeah. So it's a bit depressing for the Russian soldiers uh, because they thought that they would be welcome, welcomed here with bread and butter. I don't know what they expected. And suddenly they are... They are the bad ones, you know. They come and people want them out. They 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 swear at them. They they tell them to leave. That you know that this is no place for them. They let them go back to Russia. So they but they were not ready for this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hearing you um, just offer the details. We all centers around conflict, and this is a very intense kind of conflict. Um, going to battle, going to war. And I'm just curious about what your relationship is with, with conflict and how you handle it. And, and what does this, because in some ways, you know, for athletes, we don't, we're not necessarily in conflict, but we're in a certain kind of battle, certainly not the kind that military is involved in. Right. So I think what's unique about tennis, and I kind of equate it very similarly to say um, boxing or MMA fighting where it's one-on-one, you know, it's a very unique situation. So I'm curious, um, you know, what first, what your relationship with, with conflict is and how do you, how do you process it? How do you handle it? I would say that uh, it's a completely different from tennis uh, because tennis is, it's a battle of uh, emotions and physical, but um, at the end of the day, tennis matches won and lost are mentally in the head. You know, the decisions that you make in a certain certain moments, they are the crucial ones which just determine whether you're going to win or lose. So it is a bit different because here it's not only physical and it's not only mental, it's actually life and death. And that's the... That's the the tough part, uh, seeing seeing kids die, seeing an eighteen month uh, year old baby uh, die from the scrape of uh, of a bomb which flew into the next building next door. It makes you angry. It makes you angry, and it wants you to to it wants you that the people who've done it they would pay for it, and they would pay for it with their lives. Um, it is scary because uh, this is something that I think we should not experience. But I would say that at least for me, when I see these, I don't know, atrocities, I, I, I cannot even I cannot even describe what it is. I have no doubts that I would, you know, I would answer to this barbaric act, and that scares me. And I can totally understand why it would be scary. What What is it about that that is the scariest to you? That you are almost um, convinced that you will be able to to kill, to 
to uh, how you can say uh, to redeem a life whose life, how you call it, I don't know, to to revenge, and that's scary. Uh, that is really scary. That something that because I don't know how I'm going to act once the situation has come. Yeah. Um, but uh, the things they do, they're just unimaginable. They, I just cannot understand what kind of human being you must be to shut cold blood in the back of family while they running away from you. I just, I don't know what kind of person that must be. Yeah, I've seen some of the footage um, and it's heartbreaking. I, there, I, there really is no words. I mean, it's, it's gory, it's heartbreaking, it's terrifying. Uh, I cannot imagine what, what you all are going through. You know, on this show, we, we talk about athletes making the transition from sport. And we also, and within that context, we talked about taking some of the skills and the experiences and the lessons we learn from sport and using that to help us as a vehicle to help us make that transition and try to apply it. Is there anything from sport, you being a professional tennis player and professional athlete for nearly 20 years that you're leaning into to help get you through this? Um, no. There's no parallels to the sport world in a normal world uh, coming into war. Um, I do use my communication skills. And that's all I can do. You know, I can. I the only thing I'm trying to do right now because I am reservist and I'm in the middle of the city of Kiev, and the Russians are not close. And I guess it's going to take them at least, if they will attack and try to advance, it's going to take them still a couple of days to get in here. So I'm trying to do as much as I can. So in terms of you know media, I'm trying to tell the world the story which needs to be told that the world would see the real images, the real understand that you know. What happens here, uh, it's not going to only uh, end here. That it's uh, it's the world, it's the Europe continent, which is you know changing and shaping for new. And if Ukraine will fail, that there is a big concern about what's going to happen next. And mm-hmm. that you want to support Ukraine in by all means, and I really mean by all means, for that to, to stop, to stop Russia. Because if you look uh, back in the track record of Russia and their conflicts, I mean, in 30 years, they had multiple conflicts, whether it's the first or second Chechen war, whether it's Georgia, whether it's, they were in Syria, I mean, Afghanistan, they were everywhere. But the Ukraine never attacked anyone. We actually barely had an army before the, the revolution of 2014. We are a peaceful nation. We are fighting more inside Ukraine than we would fight anybody else. I mean, Ukrainians are a very interesting nation, I would say. You know, we, we can... We can get by with uh, poor standards. We can get by with not great politicians, although now we have, I would say, one of the exceptional presidents uh, in this time. Uh, we can get away, we can, you know, we can buy, we can swallow, I would say, a lot of things, but there's one thing that Ukrainian will never tolerate, and that's when somebody's trying to take away their freedom. Mm. It's been remarkable because in, we are the only country inside Europe which in, I would say, what, 18 years, we had two revolutions, but if you take it back in the span of 10 years, we had two. There was a revolution in 2004 and then in 2014. So it's something which, uh, which the world needs to understand. We, we can tolerate lots of things, 
but we will not allow anybody to take away our freedom and, and our wish for democracy. Hmm. Yeah. When you talk about things that the country, you know, Ukraine will not tolerate, I get the sense that you have also been moved by everybody around you, your family, your country, your country women, your country men, and this sense of um, honor and respect for your homeland. Um, but I'm curious about what, who or what has inspired you to keep moving forward with, with all of this? Um, you know, I think, firstly, we're very lucky to have uh, our president as he is. And I would say in the past years, we had, we had a lot of presidents which were politicians, you know, but they were not presidents. And finally, we have a, a person who is a president who is ready to lead, ready to take responsibilities and ready to put his life on the line for this, uh, for this, uh, for the way he's leading us. And I think that what inspired the people around Ukraine, you know, they see that the president stays in Kiev. He's not leaving, although he's threatened uh, that his life will be taken by, I don't know, Kadyrov or whatever the Chechens are saying, you know, that they will kill him or slaughter him or whatever. And that's, I think, that what leads and, and unites and raises the nation up. Uh, on the other hand, I think the big miscalculation of Russia was that in eight years of war, we all understood that in time and place, there might be something like this happen. So everybody morally was more or less ready that something like this might happen. And once you, you're not getting ready for it, but you have it somewhere in the back of your mind that this might happen and you already know about it, it's a bit easier to, to comprehend and maybe make a decision because you are... Mm you are upset, you know that this is not right. You've seen the difference. You understand the difference. You travel to Europe uh, and you understand that the values which we're trying to build in Ukraine, that they're the right ones. And then suddenly someone wants to come in and, and, and take it away. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's misfortune because the, 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 the lady who's running my tennis club or our tennis club, because she's also part owner, she was running a tennis club in Donetsk. And during the events of the 14, when the Russia-supported militia, you know, took the uh, city of Donetsk and Luhansk away and created this, I don't know, independent separatist republics or whatever it is, which now actually acknowledged by Russia, uh, her club was taken away by Russian army, by Russian mm -hmm. artillery. They, they wow. came in the club and, and they even lived there, so she left. And it's... It's it's sad because, you know, the same thing. She moved away. She came to Kiev. She built everything from scratch. We we actually started to get some fantastic results from the club in terms of kids, in terms of coaches, in terms of, you know, people coming in. There were more free hours. Everybody was playing. And she has to go through this thing again. She basically restarted her life again. And now it's all been taken away again. And it's, it's heartbreaking because she's not the only one case. We're talking about... Uh, hundreds of thousands of people from Donetsk and Luhansk who moved away from their own cities mm. knowing they cannot survive and they cannot live in such world and you know they're building their lives again from scratch and now they've been hit again and many of them stay many of them stay and say that they're not willing to live again that they're willing now now they're willing to fight for what, what they built in these eight years wow that's unbelievable um you know, you, you mentioned kind of 
your livelihood, um, your the co-owner of your tennis club, wanting to to protect her life, her freedom, um, and uh, I don't know. It just made me think about uh, your 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 previous chapter of being a tennis player, and um, have you had any time to to miss? tennis or miss being an athlete at all? Have you get, had a moment to even process like stepping, finally stepping away from tennis? Um, not really. Uh, honestly, for me, the hard part was actually not retiring from the tour, but retiring from Davis Cup. I played uh, Davis Cup for 16 years. I think, I don't know how many matches, uh, but I think I missed one or two matches in these 16 years out of Davis Cup. Um, and for me, basically saying goodbye to that was already like a halfway out of tennis. And that was a hard decision and that was an emotional decision and, and uh, it was painful. So when I decided the Australian Open is going to be my last, it wasn't really that, you know, uh, I didn't feel that emotion anymore. And uh, I have to understand, you have to understand, you know, having three kids and being 36 years of age uh, and ranked 200 in the world, um, you need to really step up to come back. Uh, you need to read to put those hours in. And whenever I'm home, I would always find a cause why, you know, I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't do that. I would want to spend time with kids. I would want to take them somewhere. And uh, if you want to come back, you have to train more than others, not less. Uh, and I mentally and, and, and in my mind, I understood that, you know, that I, I can on any given day uh, be a good player, a top 100, top 50, top 30 player. I could, but then I couldn't continue. <laughs> you know, one match at a time is not really making you come back. So I understand that, you know, it is time. Uh, there were some opportunities uh, out of tennis and they were, you know, they were, they were in a direction of what I always dreamt of, the, you know, that help others to, to, to raise their potential because I know that I've, uh, I've come all my life in tennis with the support of my family. There was no support of federation, other country, no nothing. And I have did some good things, but I did some mistakes. But they were mine. I owned them because uh, those decisions were made by me. So I was always, uh, you know, a little bit upset on a country that it never really looked after the athletes. It, because the athletes are the image of the country, you know. And the proudness of the country comes from, from the results above. So uh, when this opportunity to, to build a national Olympic team came around, I, I had no doubts about that I want to do it because it's something that, you know, could change the perspective and could change the narrative of uh, how the sport is shaped in Ukraine. It would give the young uh, kids will to, to, to do sports because if they would see that, you know, this individual that's successful, they are they're honored in Ukraine. They're, uh, you know, that they're uh, popular people. Um, they would try to do it again. They would try to do this sport as well. And it doesn't matter what kind of sport, whether it's fencing or pole vaulting, or it doesn't matter. You know, as long as you treat those people with respect, as long as you show to the nation that they deserve the best because they are the best from the country and in the world, mm -hmm. uh, it changes the mentality. And that's the past which we started. We had a fantastic program to, to launch, but unfortunately we have to postpone. So it's just on hold for now. And, but it but it sounds like your next the next stage it, you were you were planting the seeds 
of really giving back to the next gen and developing them not only as athletes um, and tennis players, but as human beings as well. But you now you mentioned that you retired from playing the Davis Cup, but not necessarily. Does that mean that you're still going to keep playing on the ATP tour or? No, no, no. My last match was Australian Open. Okay. 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 And what was that like? Unless the conflict is over by Wimbledon and Wimbledon wants to award me a walker to come back. (laughs) Never say never. Uh, we don't know. We don't know. We'll see. <laughs> never say never, Sergey. Um, so, what was that? What was that? That match? That week? That month? Just kind of walking out. What was that like? Uh, I would expect it to be more emotional, but it was kind of empty. It's like I was ready in the head to say goodbye. You know, it wasn't. No tears, no second thoughts, nothing. Just, you know, like you come to something that you're ready for it. And I think that's the best way to go out, you know, that you don't have any regrets. You don't, um, you don't chase anything. You, you don't challenge yourself. You say, well, you did whatever you could. Of course, I could continue, honestly. Uh, and I was thinking about continuing in doubles because uh, that's much more fun. It's less physical and, you know. But uh, I was looking at my wife, which supported me for 11 years, you know, staying home was one, then two, then three kids, you know, and supporting from home and taking care of the kids. And I just, I just couldn't do it to her. I mean, that's another two, three years on the tour. I just cannot imagine I would do it. Mm-hmm. So you had other reasons, other, yeah. definitely other reasons to kind of help you through that. Um, and the bigger picture. Yeah. It, yeah mm-hmm. when you, have, you, you can't really take a decision by your own. You have to, you have yeah. to look everything uh yeah a lot of people don't really realize about you know being a professional athlete you you have to be selfish in order to succeed and do really well and a part of that selfishness is also having a wonderful team around you and oftentimes that involves not just the coaches but also family members partners kids too i mean it's a it's a major sacrifice for athletes sometimes they they send out a uh, a tweet or public post or, you know, there's, there's always that press conference, you know, as you kind of did, you mentioned it publicly, publicly, but sometimes athletes will write out almost like a letter uh, a retirement letter, um, talking about their experiences. And I'm, I'm wondering if you have had a chance to really reflect on if you had to write a letter to tennis and maybe you, you already have, what would that letter say? Um, my letter was very short. Uh, I do thank Dennis for what it gave me because it actually gave me a life. It gave me a understanding of world order, you can say. I traveled the world. I met fantastic people. I competed in the best venues. I've, uh, you know, I've, uh, I've grown as a person. I've uh, grown as an individual. I understood how the business aspect worked because I was in a council for almost eight years. Dennis basically gave me Everything it, it it built me, uh, and I am grateful because that sport actually gave me a life which I would never have if I wouldn't play tennis. So there's actually I I don't have any regrets. Yeah, I made mistakes. Well, all of us do. I could have been better. I've could have, but I've done what I did. I've done. I've take my share out of the tour. Uh, I've competed against the best players in the history. Uh, often, well, and, beaten, 
Yeah, and I came, some of the best. I came short, but yes, I've beaten some. <laughs> and it gives me joy reflecting back to it. Uh, so I think I've made my life, because for me, from the start, it was, you know, when all, not the world, but the Federation and the people in Ukraine say, you know, asking your parents why they're spending money on tennis because you don't have any potential. Uh, your goal, number one, is to, you know, to achieve the result, to prove them wrong. Yeah. So that was my main aim is actually to make my parents proud because they, they you know, they put so much effort, so much financial into it, uh, family effort, because my mother and me, we moved away for six months a year uh, to Czech Republic when I was 12. So we lived six months there, six months back. Uh, you know, they supported, they pushed it all over. And I wanted them to see that, you know, they didn't do it uh, for nothing. And then it shifted when you know, when you have a first child, then, then something else kicks in, then your responsibility comes in, then you start really thinking about the money. <laughs> and that's, that's just the reality. Uh, you think whether you have a family to support, you have a kids to raise, and and that just changes. So it really tennis is really learning how to live, learning how to be individual, how to learn how to be independent, to make decisions on your own, and then be responsible for those decisions. So it's for me, it's one of the best sports in the world, and I really cherish that I had my mark in tennis. Mm-hmm. You mentioned having your first child. Uh, can really change your perspective on things. And I do think children in particular really highlight the financial aspect Um, and not in a superficial way, but it's, yeah, I mean, you know, money affords you opportunities and food on the table and security in multiple ways and also for your partner or the family and whatever. And so I think, you know, I think having these discussions with athletes is so important because I think on the outside, outside, a lot of people think that, oh, if you're a professional athlete, you're completely fine financially. Like you're, you play million, you know, you made millions of dollars. You're going to ride off into the sunset, big house, big cars. Um, And that is definitely most of the time, not the case. And tennis is really hard. It is, in my opinion, it's one of the hardest sports financially to survive because if you if you lose, you go home and you don't make money, essentially. Um, but how are you planning for that financial transition? Because that is something that a lot of athletes really grapple with uh, and it plays a big role in it in their decision to to retire or not retire. Well, I was, uh, uh, throughout my career, I would say I was just lucky, uh, because lucky in many ways, you know, uh, lucky to play the final of US Open Juniors, uh, lucky to have a contract with Prince, which was giving me a little bonus, uh, lucky to, uh, at that time, live in a country where uh, it was ex- extremely cheap. I was living in Slovakia where one US dollar was 50 Slovakian krones, and basically, uh I paid the coach salary was 20,000 crowns, which was like, I don't know, uh, $400 a month. You know, uh, I'm lucky to qualify in Moscow straight after US Open and get uh, a 10,000 minus 30% tax of $7,000 as the first prize money, which were really set me up for almost a year of travel and coach expenses. Mm-hmm. And those things, uh, that's why I'm saying, you know, in sports, uh, yes, we all look to this. Um, fantastic careers which were which were there but there's also a, a lot of careers which never happened which never happened although the guys tried but they were just 
not lucky. You know, there were, there were, there were a lot of players who were better than me, who were more talented than me. They played better, but they just were a little bit maybe unlucky, maybe a little bit short on their patience. You know, they didn't wait enough. They didn't maybe were convinced enough that they have that potential. Uh, and those things, they matter. Uh, for me, so a, I, I can only say that I was lucky. Yes, of course, tennis is a very expensive sport and we spend about three, depends on your team, but about three to 400 thousand a year on your team while you travel. And those costs, they, you know, they grow every year because, you know, the inflation, the tickets go up, everything goes up. So... Yes, we, we earn well, we spend well, and uh, of course the transition is uh, the smarter guys, they, you know, they find a way to invest. Some of them they play safe, some of them not. But uh, tennis is, uh, is brilliant because you know, it teaches you how you have to live your life. You're responsible for your money, you're responsible for your results. And yeah. uh, one way or the other, I, I was responsible for my money. I, I invested some and uh, invested some into the wine business, which is in Ukraine, which is right now, uh, if Russia succeeds, well, that's dead. Uh, you know, as a business, so that's an in, in investment out of the window. You can say I'm in Ukraine protecting <laughs> protecting my winery, um, but uh, no, it's uh, there are of course financial causes, especially when you have a family that you have something you have to take care of. You have you have school fees, you have food to put on the table. There's a lot of things you have to to consider. But tennis is great because. A, it gives you opportunity to earn them while you play, and B, it gives you opportunity to earn them when you finish. But it depends whether you want to stay and coach mm-hmm. or do something else. Mm-hmm. It really sounds like you've planted all those different seeds, and and it's allowing you to make that transition where you have other things to focus on. You've got the National Olympic team, um, your wine business, the tennis club. But I, it makes me wonder... What what do you think would have happened if Russia invaded, but you were still playing and you were still traveling? Let's say you were younger and you were more kind of like at the peak. But even now, do you think you would have made the same decision? That already happened once. Russia already invaded in 14. Mm. And I made a choice to, you know, to do what I could do best to play tennis and to promote Ukraine and to promote the, the freedom. And, you know, that was a choice back then. And that was the first child as well was born. So it's, I don't know. <laughs> I honestly have no, I have no answer to that question. It all depends, I guess, on the circumstance which I would be in at that particular time. If I would be younger, if I would have less kids, or, or what would be the cause. Yeah. But... But now, in this given moment, that's the decision I made. And mm-hmm. I'm maybe not always, uh, I don't know how to describe, maybe not, not always as rightful as I should be, but I usually stick even to my mistakes if I make them. What do you mean by rightful? Well, I mean that, you know, a lot of times I made a decision which a lot of people thought that it's not right to make. Uh, but it's a decision which I felt is right for me and felt is right for the for the rest of the decision making or the process that's why in the council we always had a lot of you know a lot of uh, conflicts because i believe that uh, we were always supposed to look not only after ourselves or or the small group of individuals we're supposed to look after a big group of the sport and and about the sport in general and that's why you know you're always trying to squeeze out the organizations and and entities for you know looking after 
a great number of players, not only the, the small number which is already making good money. Mm-hmm. And that was always a conflict because uh, the entities and the, and the governing bodies and, and the tournaments, especially, they just want to feed the, the best. You know, they, they want to feed the rest of the field. Mm-hmm. And that's not right, in my opinion, but maybe I'm wrong. For somebody, maybe it is right. Mm-hmm. Well, right or wrong, I mean, that's, that's subjective, right? I don't, I don't know if anyone has like a really right or wrong. We only know what's right for us um, and our families. But you're, it sounds like you're getting a ton of support. It sounds like the tennis community, um, and I'm sure beyond, but definitely you know, the tennis community has reached out to you and is really offering you the encouragement, the support. I know you posted your exchange with Novak Djokovic. Uh, so what, is, what has that been like? Well, it's actually been great um, that he reached out. You know, he asked and he knows about the situation. Actually, a lot of players did. I mean, I just posted him because he is the most prominent one, I would say. I could post a, uh, an email from Roger, but uh, Novak reached out to me, which was fantastic. You know, he he's the one who went through something like this when he was a kid. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he has a sense of what's going on and how he's going to, how he can change and evolve. And uh, that's what's really great about that he really wrote to me and I'm really grateful to him for his support and and his understanding of the situation. Um, It is, as I said, there's a lot of messages came in, really a lot, uh, from all the players that I've competed with from all over the countries. And it is, I am thankful for that support. I'm thankful for the tour, for their their decision-making, which, you know, it's been a long time since the tour for WTA, ITF and ATP, they've done something that massive. Uh, in terms of banning Russian Federation uh, from Fed Cup and Davis Cup, you know, removing the flag, removing the name of the nation. It is serious. But um, on the other hand, that I'm grateful, I understand that this is the only way to stop this. Yeah. What the Russians will have to feel the collective guilt of what the, what the president is doing or what the army is doing, the atrocities and the killings. Maybe then something will change and they will reconsider and they will try to change their order of governance inside the country. Because while, you know, there was eight years of conflict in Ukraine where the Russia was, you know, doing that conflict and, uh, and they were traveling around the world, you know, they were, they were enjoying And I'm not talking about sports people, I'm talking about regular Russian citizens, which actually voted for Putin, for instance. You know, and they were enjoying themselves in, in, uh, in the Provence, in, in Saint-Tropez, in France, in, in Alps, on skiing and, and in states, in New York, you know, and they were in Los Angeles, everywhere. And they will say, well, you know, it's Putin, it's not us. Now they will have to feel the real uh, weight of the responsibility over the nation. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I hope will make them feel and think how they can get out. Because none of them want to live in Russia. All of these richer people, they send their kids away to study in states, in Great Britain, in Switzerland, anywhere, but not in Russia. Although when, when it comes to Putin, they support Putin, they support Russia because Russia is great. But none of them want to live there. It feels extremely weird that, you know, you're at one side, you're such a big uh, Russians and promoting Russia. But on the other, you don't want your kids to live there. You don't want to live there yourself. Right. And then that it is. So now they'll have to go back. They'll have to live there and they will have to live without the iPhones and iPads and, and all the technology which is provided to the world. And I want to see how they're going to cope with it. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, there's that sense of hypocrisy. 
in a big conversation, way. right? We have a minister of uh, was uh, a minister of uh, foreign affairs, which is Lavrov, which is second man of Putin, and his daughter, I think, has an American passport. Both mm. of his daughters, yet he's shouting that you know Russia is a great country and it's better than the West and better than any other countries and any other, all other countries are bad. Yet his daughters are living abroad. They married the citizens of different countries, not Russians. So hmm. a bit weird. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I hear the I hear the drive, the fuel, the motivation, your passion. What do you do to, or have you given yourself an opportunity to just just re-energize and relax or recover? You know, in, in, in sport, if you're if we're operating at a high adrenaline pace, you kind of just basically cop, you know, you, you cop out towards the end of a five setter, you know, your, your body, your mind, your soul can only handle so much. And I can't imagine the adrenaline that you've been experiencing over the past several days or week. So what are you doing right now? Or have you done anything for yourself to just refuel or reflect? I will refuel and reflect once we win. I think that will be the right course because once you have a certain target and you're trying to achieve something, you're trying to change something, you have the drive. It's like, you know, when you're competing in a tournament and you, you play that five-set match, but in a day and a half or in a day, you have another one to go. So you, after you cool down, you stretch, you organize best, you do whatever you need to do to recover, you're getting ready for the next match and then for the next one and then for the next one. And only once you lost the last match on that tournament, you know, that when it all comes down to you and you, you know, you feel tired, you feel exhausted, you feel pain. So right now I'm still in the match. I'm still in the tournament. Mm. And once, you know, once all of that going to fade away and once, you know, we will know what's the outcome of this battle, then I guess uh, there will be the time. And I just hope I will have the time uh, and I'll be still here to have the time. Yeah. You've, you've played the role of an athlete and you, you've had a coach, obviously, and you've also played the role as a coach. If you were coaching yourself right now, what kinds of things do you think you would say to yourself just about managing everything that you're going through? Maybe like a bigger picture perspective. Right now, you mean managing or in, in, a, in a past career? No, here. Yeah, right. Like right now, if, if you were coaching yourself in life. Um, I, I think I cannot answer that question because to coach in life, you need to actually get through this experience in order to evaluate it after. Mm. And I'm now in the experience, so it's really hard to coach inside it. I would need somebody with the experience who actually went through a war, like let's say Novak, but he was young. So we, you will need somebody who was at that age. Uh, let's say like Nikki Pilic, you know, uh, he went through the war completely. I think after his career in Yugoslavia, fall apart. Uh, maybe something from that guys, and that would uh, you know, that would be insightful because I I cannot tell you you know how I would coach myself. Only after that it happened, I would say mm -hmm. where mistakes were made and how could have acted different. What do you hope for yourself? I hope for myself that I'll go back to my kids. I'll go back to my wife and. I will spend the time with them and the rest I will never leave them again. 
And as we kind of just wrap things up, um, you know, I know you've mentioned that you want to get the message out. What are some things, what would you like to say for, to the rest of us who aren't there um, that you would like for us to know that you think it's important to know? I would like you to know that the people who are dying here, they're not so distant from you. They're the same individuals. They're, they're well uh, educated. They're, they're just normal people, as you would see on any street in any European country. And they're dying because of some insanity of, uh, of one of the presidents. And this is what I, you know, it is easier to distance yourself from the Syria conflict. It was easier to, dist- to distance yourself from the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. It was, because it was far. And the people there, they're different a little bit. You know, they have a different language. They have different culture, uh, everything. But here, it's, it's Christianity. It, it's, we are a developed country. I think uh, per capita, almost uh, 80% of population has the, iPhone, the smartphones. Uh, and everybody has access to the internet. So we are educated nation. Yes, we are maybe not so advanced as the Germanys or Slovakia or, or any other European countries, but we're on the way there. And, you know, the atrocities which happen to these people, they're unimaginable. You would never expect anything like this to happen. So I just want you to reflect on that, that while Ukraine is in pain and agony, it will not stop because we don't know which country will be next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and final question. It sounds, I know this was a really hard decision and I think a lot of people are supporting you and they do, regardless of how you feel about it, do feel it is very heroic. Uh, and I get the sense that I don't know if you, if you have accepted your decision but do you feel like you have already, you've moved forward, you've been able to process it and, and not only accept your decision, but in, in other ways, forgive yourself for, for making this decision? I accepted the decision, but I'm not sure I will ever be able to forgive. Uh, no matter the outcome of this war and my life, I'm not sure I will be able to forgive that I put, this, put my wife through this. And hopefully I will not put my kids through this. So it's, it's guilt which will always be with me, but it, as I said, no matter the decision which I would make, if I would stay, that guilt would also be with me. But while I'm here and I hope I can survive and I hope that Ukraine will win, then guilt is not going to be that sour. It's not going to be that painful. You know, I think that I could try to, to make uh, myself forgive a little bit through my family that my wife will forgive me entirely and, and my kids and doing good to my family will you know will soften that that hammer but if i would stay in ukraine would lose and i would lose the country there will be no forgiveness no matter what cause so it is i don't know it is what it is yeah i'm not even sure how to 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 wrap up an interview it feels so this interview it feels so unfinished it feels so it is it is unfinished right because we're right in the middle of it you're in the middle of it but either way um you know we hope that you remain safe um that you ukraine can can get through this 
And I just, I want to thank you for being so courageous and coming on and being so open and sharing everything. And, um, you know, we, we just hope that you remain safe. That's it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. As you could tell, I was really unsure about how to wrap things up with Sergey. I think I was more afraid than anything else to end the interview because I wasn't sure what was going to happen to him. Was he going to stay in Ukraine? Was he going to see his family again? Was he going to survive? I didn't have the answers to any of those questions, and it was really kind of scary. But I'm thinking, and I'm praying, and I'm sending all the love and strength to Sergey and everyone else who has been affected by this war. War is awful, and it's complicated. And one complicated feeling that admittedly emerged for me during my conversation with Sergey was in response to one of his last statements, when he was sharing what he would like for outsiders to know about this war. On one hand, I really feel for Sergey. The people of Ukraine do not deserve any of this, any of it. And on the other hand, I also feel like no one deserves to be treated like this. And to perpetuate this narrative that this war is more important than any other war we've seen or experienced is dangerous and unproductive. To suggest that a group of people are worth fighting for because they are educated, because they are Christian, because they don't live in the desert, because they live in Europe and not Africa or Afghanistan or Iraq, somehow suggests that members of those communities are lesser than, and that those people, which are members of historically marginalized communities, are not as deserving of this attention and effort. It's implying that those people are not as worthy. Now, I recognize that probably was not Sergei's intent, or at least I hope it wasn't, which is to imply that this invasion of Ukraine is more worth the fight than some of the other conflicts that we've seen in other parts of the world. But I do believe this is an opportunity to point out the unconscious biases, the implicit and oftentimes racial biases that have emerged in our conversations and in our coverage of the Ukraine-Russia war. And to point out that we can still show support for one community without doing it at the expense of others. I hope you took something from today's conversation. I'm so, so, so glad to be back. Thank you for listening. And if you have thoughts or even ideas about who else we should feature on this show, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at prim underscore seripapat. The next chapter with Prim Seripapat is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Talk to you all next week.